Father in heaven, we thank you for another Lord's Day that we get to come together as your people and to worship you. Father, I pray that you would help us now in our time of need. Uh, Lord, we on our own cannot understand your word. We're dependent on your spirit to give us understanding. And so, Father, we do. We pray that your spirit would help us to understand your word. But, Lord, we pray that we would not just have an intellectual understanding of your word. We pray that you would transform us by it and make us more like Christ. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So as Derek just read for us, we're in Acts 27. We are nearing the end of this journey to the ends of the earth. And we have almost made it to Rome. I'm sure that as Derek was reading, you probably thought, boy, this is a long passage with lots of details. And most of them are details about the ocean and sailing. And those are things that we aren't necessarily familiar with, especially living in Colombia. However, in the, in the fall of 2015, many of us residents in Colombia became familiar firsthand with just the power of water, the power of wind, and the danger that they can pose uh, for us. Uh, again, people on the coast, they feel this more immediately, more regularly. In Colombia, we don't quite feel that. But in 2015, when the flood came through Colombia, we all felt firsthand the danger of water and the danger of wind. Uh, just to remind you uh, of some of the statistics that happened in 2015 uh, with that flood, there were more than 2,000 citizens that were displaced from their home. There were more than 2 million emergency meals that were served there were 50 dams that had breaches or failures. Some of you are still waiting for that to be fixed. There were more than 1,500 water rescues with that flood. The total private insurance loss claim was over $280 million. And the total cost of the disaster to date was around $2.2 billion with a B. And uh, unfortunately, there were 19 fatalities. Again, some seven years later, many of us, we still are faced with the reality of the danger of wind and the danger of water. And in our passage today, we are pressed on all sides by Luke. And Paul and the companions on the boat are in a dangerous situation. It's a life or death situation with the wind and the sea raging around them. And it can be easy to just gloss over some of these details because either we're, we're unfamiliar with some of the sailing terms that Luke uses or we just don't process the danger of wind and water. But Luke does record in a number of verses, lots of detail, this journey from Paul to Caesarea to Malta and then ultimately on to Rome. And I think uh, it's helpful for us as we read, to remember that Luke is, he's a historian. He cares about the facts. He cares about the details. The facts that uh, remind us that what we're reading is not a fictional account, but it's an eyewitness testimony of what actually happened in the first century. 
But Luke is not simply a historian. He doesn't care about facts for facts' sakes. He's also a Christian. And so he has a purpose in communicating the details of this journey at sea. And I think part of his purpose is that we might catch a better glimpse at the power of God over creation. And how utterly committed God is to fulfilling his purposes. And how far God will go to reveal his surpassing glory. So I want to look at uh, what Derek read for us under five headings. And then uh, follow that by a point of application. So the first, <clears throat> the first is a, a difficult start. And we see that in verses 1 through 12 when the journey starts out. It starts out immediately with difficulty. Luke tells us that Paul is delivered into the hands of Julius, who's the leader of the Augustan cohort. Again, Julius will be an important figure in this story. And right away, Luke tells us that Julius shows, uh, we might say, unusual kindness to Paul. Paul's a prisoner but Julius deals kindly with him. Julius was the leader of what's called an auxiliary cohort or uh, a cohort of troops that are taken from amongst the town's people. And Julius and Paul, they begin their journey at Adramidium. It's a coastal port north of Caesarea. And the, the government, the Roman Empire, they didn't have government ships that went around and, and got prisoners and took them from place to place. There was no government-owned ships. And so they had to secure privately-owned ships. And so he finds one in Adramidium that's going back down the coast, and then they're going to go over to Italy. And that is where Aristarchus and Luke are able to board the ship. They're able to board the ship uh, not as prisoners of the ship, but they're able to pay their own fare. And as they are able to pay their own fare, they're able to board the ship, and they're able to care for Paul. They're able to tend to his needs along the way. And so Luke tells us that they begin their journey and they sail under the lee of Cyprus. At least that's what my translation says. Some of your translations may say, uh, sailed under the shelter of Cyprus. That's what the word lee means. It's shelter that is provided by land. Again, boats, they weren't made out of steel back in Paul's day. And so they had to stay close to the shoreline in order to use the land as resources to their advantage to help them make their journey. And so they sail under the lee or under the shelter of Cyprus. And then again, from uh, Cyprus, we begin to get the picture that the winds were against us. The end of verse 4. Luke is already beginning to tell us that this will be a difficult journey, a difficult start to Rome. Luke tells us that they end up in Myra. And in Myra, they transfer to another boat. This time, the boat is from Alexandria. Now, Alexandria was a North African city. And at this particular time in the year, uh, you could not go from Alexandria kind of up and over to Italy. You had to go straight up and then from the Myra, then you could go over to Italy. 
And so they secure a ship from Alexandria. And Alexandria was kind of the main port that exported grain in the Roman Empire. And so grain would come up from Egypt and other places, would load up in Alexandria, then it would go north, and then it would go over to Rome, to the capital of the empire. And that was how Rome was able to maintain their grain throughout the season. So grain ships were important. They were privately owned, and they were essentially contracted by the Roman government to make sure that their grain supply didn't run low. And so this is the boat that Julius contracts for this second part of the journey. And again, this second boat doesn't begin with anything easier than what the journey started with. It remained difficult. And then they, uh, Luke tells us that because of the wind, they had to sail under Crete to the port of Fair Haven. Now again, the normal course would have been to sail on the north side of Crete. So Luke is uh, sprinkling these details in that, that we might not immediately get because we weren't familiar with the trade patterns in the first century in the Mediterranean. But because of the wind, they actually had to deviate from their course, sail under Crete, and they ended up in a place called Fair Haven. And there at Fair Havens, they had an important decision to make. Are we going to stay here for the winter? Are we going to try to get a better port? Fairhaven, uh, the port was exposed to the elements. And so if you wanted to leave your boat there in the winter, there's a good chance it was going to get beat up by the wind and crash into the rocks. And remember, this was a grain ship. What was on that ship was valuable. It was important. It needed to be in Rome. And so there was a debate that took place. And Paul says in verse 10, Sirs, I perceive this voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. So Paul, who's done quite a bit of traveling by sea, gives his input in the matter. He says, guys, I don't think this is a good idea. I think we need to stay put. The reason that Paul says they need to stay put is because the day of the fast had already occurred, or the day of atonement. Now, the Day of Atonement was a, a fast that God prescribed in Leviticus 16, and it would have occurred, depending on the year, between September and October, so fairly late in the year. And most scholars believe that uh, in, in the year that Paul is sailing, the fast would have occurred around October the 5th. Again, why that's important is because we have accounts from a Roman military writer who said that traveling by sea after September 15th was really dangerous. And he said traveling between November 11th and March 10th was deadly and suicidal and nobody did it. Sea travel stopped from November 11th to March the 10th. And so they're already at October the 5th. That has already passed. So they're already in the dangerous territory and they are quickly moving into the do not travel time zone. So Paul says, fair havens may not be ideal, but it's better than trying to keep on going. Paul loses out to the captain and the owner of the ship and the centurion decides that they will proceed a little bit farther up the coast to Phoenix, a better port to be in for the winter. 
And so the journey to Rome had a difficult start. It started and it continued with difficulty. The easy trip up the coast to a better harbor for the winter quickly turned disastrous. The wind blew them off their course and soon they were in the middle of an unrelenting storm. And so we see a difficult start and then we see an unrelenting storm in verses 13 through 20. Paul tells us that there was a tempestuous wind, or Luke, excuse me, tells us there was a tempestuous wind called a northeaster. Now they called it a northeaster because it was a storm caused by wind coming from the north and the east. So they just called it a northeaster. And that blew them off their course. Instead of being able to go up north, the northern wind pushed against them and made them go south and west. Again, ancient boats, not made out of steel, not engine-powered. They didn't have much of an option of sailing against the wind. When the wind blew, and when the wind blew strongly, they had no choice but to turn the boat and let the wind drive them and operate it the best that they could. And so they end up going southwest. And Luke tells us that things are getting so bad in this storm that they take five drastic measures to try to keep the boat afloat. They enter pure on survival mode. The first is they secure the ship's boat. And so normally you have the main vessel and then kind of dragging behind it is what we would call a lifeboat. And that lifeboat would allow the bigger boats to to anchor in deeper water and then use the, the smaller boat to go in and out of the harbor to bring supplies, that sort of thing. Well, in this kind of storm, the danger was that lifeboat swinging around and crashing into the main boat. And so they secure that. They tie it to the main vessel, get it out of the water. And then Luke tells us that they use supports to undergird the ship. This is a process known in sailing as frapping. Basically, you would take ropes and you would draw them under the boat and tie them tight, and you would hold the wooden planks together. Again, as uh, waves are crashing, it's putting uh, added and unaccounted for stress, and so this frapping process was a way to try to add a little bit of extra oomph to the boat to make sure that it could continue on sailing. And then Luke tells us that they then lowered the gear because they feared that they would reach Sirtis. Sirtis Uh, was, again, on the North African coast, about 400 miles away. 400 miles, that is roughly the distance between here and Nashville, Tennessee. So they were quite a ways away from Sirtis, but they're afraid that this storm is going to push them that direction. Sirtis was, uh, was kind of riddled with sandbars, so it's it's a nautical graveyard for boats. So they have fear that this storm is blowing so hard that they have no control over it, that even though it's 400 miles away, we've got to act now because we can't control this thing. And so they lower the gear. They lower an anchor that was, uh, would trail in the back of the boat intended to slow it down. And then Luke tells us that they begin to jettison the cargo. 
And not only do they jettison the cargo, they then throw over some of the ship's tackle. So they take these five measures to try to secure the boat and give them better uh, control of it in the midst of this storm. And yet, in spite of all of this, Luke tells us in verse 20 that neither the sun nor the stars appeared for many days. Again, they didn't have Google Maps. These boats did not come equipped with Apple Boat Play. There was none of that technology. You traveled by using the sun and the stars to tell you where you were in the ocean. Luke says that they couldn't see the sun, they couldn't see the stars. They were lost at sea with the waves raging and crashing on their ship. Luke tells us that they had abandoned all hope. What began as a difficult journey continued and increased to become a more dangerous journey. The strong winds gave way to a full-on northeaster, and they were truly in an unrelenting storm. The captain, the owner, the sailors, the prisoners, everyone had given up hope. Humanly speaking, was nothing else that could be done. They were just to sit and wait, and in their minds, wait for the ship to give way. And it's in the midst of this unrelenting storm when all hope is lost that Paul gives a hopeful speech. And so that's the third heading of uh, of today's sermon, the, the hopeful speech. You see that in verses 21 through 26. Again, Paul begins his hopeful speech um, uh, in verse 21. When Paul says, men, you should have listened to me and not set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Again, one scholar has noted that at this point, Paul has probably traveled over 3,500 miles by sea, combining his missionary travels. By default, Paul would have been likely the most experienced sea traveler on the boat, Perhaps the captain of the ship uh, had more miles than Paul, but Paul was up there on the ship in terms of his knowledge of sea travel, conditions, those sorts of things. So Paul begins by recalling, guys, this is what I said. This is not a good idea. But Paul doesn't linger there for long. He proceeds to share his unshakable hope with them. So beginning in verse 22, Paul says, Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only the ship. And how does Paul know this? He says, For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And the angel said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. So Paul stands up and speaks and says, guys, don't be afraid. An angel of the Lord has appeared to me and has told me that I'm to appear before Caesar. Now we remember from chapter 23 that 
Jesus appeared to Paul and says, Paul, take courage because you are to testify about me in Rome. The angel now clarifies that it's not just in Rome that you'll testify, but it's before Caesar that you'll testify. And I know this storm is hopeless from a human perspective, but take courage, Paul, because you're going to stand before Caesar. But not only that, the angel says, and behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have told you. But we must run aground on some island. So not only does the angel tell Paul that Paul will stand before Caesar, but everyone else will make it safe and sound to their destination. Don't miss the point of Paul's speech. The implications of Paul's speech are this, if I can paraphrase it. Paul says, take courage because my God is the true God. He's alive. He's not dead like a worthless idol. He's living. And he sent his messenger to me. And my God is faithful. My God has promised me that I will stand before Caesar and that everyone on this vessel will reach shore safely. Not only is my God alive, but He is faithful and He is good. He has promised that everyone on this ship will make it safe to shore. So take courage, men, because it will be exactly as my God has said. In a situation when everyone had lost hope, and humanly speaking, there was no hope of rescue, Paul says, I have a hope in God. And it's on full display in this dark storm. God reassures Paul that his promises will hold fast and the salvation of those on the ship will come through the loss of the ship itself. And so then Luke moves and describes the promised salvation from God in verses 27 through 44. So when the 14th night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms, and a little further they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. A sounding was a, a measuring device that they would use on the boat to basically find out how deep the shoreline was. The deeper the shore, the further away you were from land, the shallower the shore, the closer you were to land. And so they take a sounding and realize that they are indeed getting closer to land. And so they let down four anchors off the back of the boat to try to slow, them, uh, slow the vessel down through the night. And then Luke tells us that there are sailors in verse 30 who are not so confident that they will make it safe to shore. So they attempt to take matters in their own hands. They give a pretense of being thoughtful and caring for others. But yet their real plan is to use the lifeboat, cut it down, and swim to shore themselves or row to shore themselves. Paul reminds Julius, the centurion, that everyone was to live. His God had said so. It would be exactly that way. 
But everybody must stay on board. The promised salvation would require all hands on deck. It would require the sailors, the crew, to be on board and help facilitate. And so when daylight comes, Paul urges the prisoners to eat food. Luke tells us that they hadn't eaten for 14 days. And some of you know exactly why they hadn't eaten for 14 days on this boat. For some, it would have been anxiety. It's hard to eat when you're worried that at any moment the ship would go down. For others, it's hard to eat when you're on a ship and it's just getting knocked about by the winds and the waves and for two weeks straight, all day, every day, rocking back and forth, seasickness. So we understand why they would not have eaten for 14 days, anxiety or sickness. But Paul says, you need to eat. It's going to require strength on your part to make it safe to shore. So uh, push through the anxiety, push through the sickness, take some food. And Paul blesses that food and, and prays before the, the people on board and thanks his God. And then when they see the land, they cut the anchors and they head straight for shore. And their goal is to just kind of run the ship up on the coast where they could make it out safe and sound. Luke tells us that they hit a reef instead. <clears throat> the word reef literally means the place between two seas. So it's, it's essentially a, a sandbar that uh, sand has come up and it's dividing the sea. And that's what Luke tells us they hit. And then the ship is stuck and as it's stuck, the waves continue to crash and break the ship apart. And so following the protocol, the soldiers decide the best course of action at this point, knowing that the ship is going down, is to kill the prisoners. That would be better than letting them escape and then them being held culpable for allowing a prisoner to escape. However, Julius, who we said at the beginning is an important figure in this person, comes back to the scene. In verse 43, Luke tells us that the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. And so the centurion, Julius, again, shows Paul a measure of kindness. And he prevents the sailors from not just killing Paul, but all the other prisoners that were on board. And then Luke tells us, that some who could swim, they jumped overboard and swam to shore. And then in verse 44, the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship, they made it to shore. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. And so the dangers of Paul and the crew at sea have ceased. They've made it to land. But Paul's danger has not ended we read in chapter 28, verses 1 through 10, that as soon as they get to land, Paul faces another danger. This time it's not a sea, but it's a snake. And so this is the fifth and final heading of our passage. It's, I've titled it an ironic snake bite. And we'll see the irony in it in a moment. But they crash and make it safely to the island known to us as Malta. And again, Malta was uh, 
originally settled, probably from citizens of Africa, and then it was colonized around the year 1000 BC by the Phoenicians. And so the language that they spoke was probably, their native language was probably not Latin or Greek. However, at this point, being kind of just under Sicily, Latin or Greek would have been spoken by some people in some measure on the island. So Luke calls them the natives, those that were indigenous to the island. And Luke tells us that they show uh, Paul and they show the crew unusual kindness. And they kindled a fire. Remember, it's the winter time at this point. Everybody's soaking wet. Cold weather and being wet, it's a recipe for danger, hypothermia. And so these native uh, people of Malta, they build fires. And Paul decides that he wants to help. He wants to be part of gathering wood and making sure that everybody is able to dry out and remain safe. Luke tells us that as Paul goes to put the pieces of wood in the fire, a viper came out, presumably away from the heat, and latches on to Paul's hand. And then in verse 4, when the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. In Greek mythology, there was a goddess named Justice. And her job was to administer divine justice to those who are guilty. And so the native people, they see the the snake latched onto Paul's hand. They've witnessed the crash and them coming to shore. And so in their minds, there's only one solution. The goddess Justice has had the final word in Paul's life. And yet that's not at all what happened. Paul simply shrugged off the viper and continued about his business. And then their opinions changed of him drastically in verse 6. Luke tells us that they changed their minds and said that he was a god. And so the irony is that they thought their goddess justice was striking Paul dead. And what Luke wants us to see is that the true God was actually preserving Paul's life. That it was not divine retribution, but it was furthering God's plan to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Now Luke does not record for us that... Uh, whether Paul shared Christ with the natives of Malta. But as we've seen, as we've studied the book of Acts, where miracles occur, there's proclamation of the word. Because miracles serve to confirm the message that was proclaimed as actually being given from God. And so I think there's good grounds for supposing that after Paul's snakebite, and him being unharmed, and the people's opinion of him being that of a God, that Paul then proceeded to share Christ with them. That Paul was not content to leave the impression that he was a God. Rather, Paul's desire was to proclaim the one true living God. And so in an ironic turn of events that only God could orchestrate, the native people go from thinking that Paul is being struck down by justice to hearing about the justice of God satisfied in Christ Jesus. That they too could go from a life of slavery and bondage 
to salvation in Christ. And so for us, I have just one simple observation from this passage that we see clearly in Christ, we are not victims or slaves to our circumstances. Rather, we're ambassadors. We're not victims or slaves to our circumstances, but we are ambassadors for Christ. The ground of that, of course, is the finished work of Jesus on the cross that guarantees us that nothing can separate us from the love of God. But notice what Paul doesn't do in this passage. Paul does not keep his arms folded, his mouth silent when he knows that there's danger. When they're at Fair Havens and the, the debate's going on, Paul doesn't sit in the corner and sulk and say, well, I shouldn't even be here. After all, I mean, I'm falsely accused. So you guys just do what you want. And he doesn't do that. He digs in. He uses his experience and says, hey guys, I really don't think that this is the wise course of action. They don't end up following it, but Paul's not sitting passively in this story. And Paul's praying for those on board. Back in chapter 27, verse 24, the angel tells Paul, and behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. If God is granting Paul that all those will be saved, it is most likely that Paul was in fact asking God that all would be saved. So Paul was praying for people in the midst of this storm. He was interceding on their behalf. He wasn't sitting in this boat doing nothing. He was praying and asking God, God, intervene on behalf of these people. Save them. And then in the end of chapter 28 with uh, Publius, Publius, he he realized that he's sick. And so Paul begins to heal and, and heal the sick and Malta there. Again, Paul is active as an ambassador for Christ. He's not a victim to his circumstances. Paul does not wait to get to Rome before living for God. Paul's not saying, man, sure can't wait to be off this boat so I can really continue my ministry. You know, God's given me a great ministry so far. He's promised that I'm going to testify in Rome. And now I know that's even going to be before Caesar. So I'll just hang out and do nothing right now because God's got bigger and better plans for me. And today we might say something similar. We might say, I'll, I'll commit to church one day. Or I'll, I'll commit to serving one day. I'll be involved in community one day. Right now I'm just, just waiting on God to kind of settle things down a little bit. Or I'll start doing family devotions when my kids are older and they, they can listen better. Or I'll, I'll start giving generously when I have got more money in my bank account. God knows my needs. He he knows where I am. And so he knows that I I really can't give anything right now. Or one day I'll I'll really get serious about fighting that sin that I just keep battling. And there can be an imbalanced view of the gospel. We know that God's providence will come to pass. 
that God's promises will be fulfilled. But that is not an excuse for us to not work, to not obey Christ right now in these moments. Paul knows that God will bring him safely to Rome. But Paul also knows that he is an ambassador for Christ, tasked with preaching the gospel wherever God opens a door, whether he's in chains, whether he's on a boat, or whether he's walking in the halls of Tyrannus in Ephesus. It doesn't matter. One writer said it really well when he said, the Christian life is not let go and let God. The journey, the the growth in godliness proceeds apace with the most intense exercise on our part. Our working is not suspended because God works. And God's working is not suspended because we work. And so as we think about this passage, this journey to Rome, I think we are pressed. Luke is pressing us with a commitment to living for God's glory now. And that means trusting that God is in control of your life. And so when he opens doors, no matter where they are, we are faithful to walk through them. And friends, the result of this kind of faith-filled living results in the display of the glory of God, which is our ultimate goal. Through the calamities of shipwrecks or relational loss, whatever calamity might be upon you, God's glory shines more brightly in those calamities. The difference between Paul and the others on board the ship was not that Paul was religious and and the other people weren't. The other people were praying to their gods on the ship. The difference was the God to whom Paul was praying. Paul knew that his God was faithful to his promise. And Paul knew that God would hold him fast, that he would indeed get to Rome. And for us, we know that God is still faithful to his promises. Not one of them has failed. God's promise to save a people from every tribe, every tongue, every language is still good. He's still delivering on that promise. He saved many of you in this room as proof that he's faithful to his promises. And so as you grow to understand the reality that God's promises cannot fail, you are better equipped to trust him in every circumstance. Whether we find ourselves in abundance or whether we find ourselves in calamity. How we perceive the calamities of life They change radically when we realize that God is in control of even the most chaotic storm. And even when all human hope is lost, we know that our hope is not an earthly hope, but our hope is a heavenly hope because Jesus is risen and he sits at the right hand of God the Father. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, we thank you for passages like these. God, that detail for us with remarkable clarity that you are a God who cares about your people. 
And Lord, you are a God who acts in space and time to fulfill your promises. Father, may you help us to grow in our trust of you. And we might live as people committed to displaying your glory wherever we are, wherever you lead us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.